welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And this week we are going back to the 80s for a uh, category that I always like when we do Best Original Screenplay, or Best Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, as it was known at the time. And this is our, what, our third time doing Original Screenplay, or fourth, actually? Um, yeah, we always find there's some more interesting films in the original screenplay category than the adapted. Yeah, because as we've discussed in the past, the original screenplay category is kind of where uh, you see a lot of single nominee films or films with only one or two other nominations. Um, and also Best Picture nominees tend to be adapted, so it's a good way to get into, you know, get away from the top films so to speak and and look at some interesting ones that oscar otherwise ignored and the writing branch has always been a wild card um and you picked this one uh what led you to best original screenplay 1985 well i would say the main reason i chose this category is because i hadn't seen brazil and since Mm -hmm. i was at uni there's a lot of people telling me that it's one of their favorite movies ever and um it's got a great reputation. And I had sat down to watch it a couple of times and not quite convinced myself to go through with it for whatever reason. I, like, I think maybe I thought it looked a little bit heavy, uh, a bit long, uh, maybe too challenging for what I wanted at the time. But uh, as in terms of the rest of the category, I think most of them are good movies. And for the most part, they're very fun films. I think three of these are fun movies and there's a particularly a real crowd pleaser mainstream film in there as well that I think everyone can get behind. So definitely those were the reasons. Yeah. All right. The nominees for this category this year were Back to the Future by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, Brazil by Terry Gilliam, Tom Stoppard and Charles McCoon. The Official Story by Luis Puento and Aida Bortnik, The Purple Rose of Cairo by Woody Allen, and the winner, Witness, screenplay by Earl Wallace and William Kelly by a story from a story by those two and Pamela Wallace. So shall we start with the one I think you were referring to when you called it the crowd pleaser, uh, Back to the Future. I was actually talking about the official story, but... Oh, right. Yeah, silly me. (laughs) No, of course, um, the crowd plays Back to the Future, produced by Steven Spielberg, and the biggest hit of 1985. And I think with the 80s, and particularly 80s blockbuster movies, uh, you've also got the Goonies in this year, but there are a lot of movies from that decade that have this sort of cult status. Um, Mm -hmm. is sort of acceptable in the 80s, (laughs) verging on so naff it's actually good. Um, But I think this is one where you could put it in any decade and it would look great because it really does live up to its own hype. Um, And I think the script from the two Bobs uh, came about because of of Bob Gale and um, he found his father's high school yearbook somewhere in the house and kind of got to wondering 
whether he would be friends with his dad um, if he was around at the same time. So this is how this all came about. But I think um, Back to the Future, definitely a, a timeless classic uh, as it goes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, they prove that it could work in any decade by going to many decades over the course of the trilogy. Um, and yeah, it's it's a wonderful origin story to the script, that um, idea of, you know, what would your relationship be with your parents if they if you knew them at your age, whatever age that might be. I wonder when in the brainstorming process he also thought, and what if I slept with my mom? <laughs> you know, when when that aspect of it came in. Um, and would they remember me? <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. We could get we could get onto that later, but that is yeah. But I, it does begin with this such enticing premise, sci-fi premise, and the movie just never disappoints from then on. You know, some films have a concept and you think, amazing, and then it just all fizzles into nothing. But this one just keeps going and going, and it's so entertaining from start to finish. But I think the idea yeah. of time travel is just exciting to begin with, even though, you know, the notion of time travel is pretty absurd, to be honest, um, because time doesn't have really particular reference points scientifically so it just couldn't ever happen you know you get a movie like this that's where you're putting numbers into a um pin pad in a car you know um <laughs> it just couldn't happen like but the everything about the logistics of time travel and um does these script writers putting their spin on it really works you know um and especially like the impact and the domino effect of of everything in the plot shifting uh, what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why I love time travel stories and time travel fiction so much. Um, because, yeah, even though it is scientifically absurd, it gives the writers a kind of blank check to explore anything they want um, in terms of themes, in terms of character, in terms of like what does it mean to be alive in you know in space and time and you can push it into uh dark dramas and dark horror like things like 12 monkeys that are very heavy or you can make a madcap comedy out of it so it's a very versatile premise um and this is one of the few movies that i think does the whole you can change the future by changing the past subgenre of time travel. Yeah. Um, one of the few movies that does it right. Uh, so many movies just screw it up and just open up all sorts of paradoxes and plot holes that they just don't care enough to patch up. And one of the things I love about this movie is that it takes care to really make everything work. Um, and that's a credit to the screenwriters who are able to, you know, make it entertaining, but still self-contained and, and really, really fun. Yeah, I think within its own rules, the script is surprisingly tight. It isn't as lazy as you'd expect. Um, and it does put in the effort to, to explain things uh, when it can. D did you think that it had any plot holes? Major plot holes? 
You know, if I think about it, I probably could because I I used to think about this movie a lot, just like in my life. Um, <laughs> and it's not as big a part of my day anymore. Um, so if you asked me this question 10 or 15 years ago, I could probably rattle off a few. Um, but watching it again this time, I just kind of uh, enjoyed it and didn't really pick up any uh, that really immediately jumped out at me. And if there were any, they probably, you know, they get patched up in the sequels. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to fault it. Yeah, I think you'd have to watch all three together to then kind of put together a, a concrete list of plot holes. The one thing I yeah. caught up with this time that I can't remember if it's explained in the second one or not is where Marty sees himself uh, being set upon by the Libyans near the end. And yeah. the, you know, the film implies that there can be multiple versions of Marty in the same time period. Uh, and I'm not sure if that is in keeping with the second one. It definitely isn't in keeping with the third one. But I, I wasn't sure if that made sense. But I mean, to be honest, you're right, though. It doesn't really matter that much because the film's made such an effort in other ways to, with the concept and with, you know, making this situation feel, not real, but feel diverting enough to care about. Yeah, and I mean, th- there are definitely some continuity errors with that scene. Not just that there's two Martys, but the fact that it plays out slightly differently. Um, the yeah. pacing of it and the the words he uses and things like that. But I think that can be explained by the fact that he's not in the same timeline. Um, he's in a kind of offshoot of it. And so it does it plays out close to it but it doesn't have to follow it exactly because it's not the same future because he affected it uh, right down to when he does things being a minute or two off I mean that's how I justify it I, I don't know if there are any think pieces out there that have tried to give a scientific explanation for it I imagine there's lots <laughs> mm. yeah yeah but it is it is philosophical about time it does sort of say that the moments in your life shape your journey but it isn't particularly sentimental about that you know it, it really does quash the idea of fate and like it, things like that which is a notion i've never believed in to be honest but it really does yeah. quash that well and truly but it is also quite emotional um but I think it's saying that so much of life is left to chance. And then you've got things that maybe um, characters don't leave behind. You don't leave behind. Like if um, you're a bully in the playground and you don't get your comeuppance at the time, you know, there's there's every likelihood that you'll be a bully in real life in not quite as mm-hmm. obvious a way, but maybe more insidious ways and more adult ways. So it's, it's kind of... Um, I think it kind of suggests that we don't leave any part of our experiences behind. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of a cool observation. Yeah, definitely. And it is interesting also the idea that kind of a single week in your life could be so influential um, and could completely change the person who you become. Mm. 
um, which I don't happen to believe um, that any singular moment or short period of time, unless it's really catastrophic, um, and something as relatively small as what happens to um, George and Lorraine having it completely change the course of their life and their children's life is a bit of a stretch. Um, if this were a drama, fortunately it's not. So it's not a big deal. Well, you do get like people, particularly actors, actually, you do get actors saying, oh, this particular teacher really inspired me and without their support and without them sort of being positive and encouraging me to do this, I would might have given this up and things like that. So I think people being more important than particular situations themselves. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, but not maybe people who you know for a week. <laughs> <laughs> and then I do wonder I do wonder what happens when um George and Lorraine notice that their son bears a striking resemblance to that guy they knew um back in 1955 who Lorraine had a big crush on at the time. Yeah, let's hope there were no photographers about, eh? <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a slight plot hole. I think um, Bob Gale has addressed someone and said, you know, if you'd see someone and you're 17, it's only for a few hours, would you remember their face? I potentially, I would. I that's true. Potentially, if it, if it wasn't documented, like nowadays, most things from uni, there'll be a photo of them uh, or from college, but... If it wasn't like that, I might I might not recognize that person in twenty years' time. You know. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely true. Although they might remember that his name was Calvin Klein, and they may notice a very rich clothing magnet by that name, uh, who also puts his name on his underwear. So that they might remember. Oh, that he sang Chuck Berry's song before um, Chuck Berry did, right? Is it Chuck before Berry? Chuck Berry? Yeah. It is Chuck Berry, yeah, yeah. As if you'd pick Chuck Berry, surely you'd pick the Beatles or somebody like that, right? I don't know. Um, I guess he just, uh, he luckily picked somebody who was alive at the time who could hear, well, actually he only heard like a very brief riff from Johnny B. Good, Chuck Berry did on the phone before Marty just goes nuts, uh, <laughs> kicking over the amp and... Um, you know, improving a bit, so or jamming, I guess, to give it its musical name. So I kind of that is just kind of a funny joke, and it doesn't really work as a time loop because Chuck Berry absolutely did not hear enough of that song to create it exactly the same uh, and then take credit for it. The only explanation is that he'd already written it, um, and he thought, "Oh, son of a bitch, some." Uh, some asshole stolen my song. <laughs> I think in in terms of the three films, I would say that the second one is my favourite because, you know, I think you've got a little bit more going on. Um, as you said, this is the sort of origin story. Um, I think in the second one, you've got like Biff and the Almanac and, you know, the sense that actually somebody can take advantage of it time travel for financial gain and for sort of darker elements um 
or darker reasons. Um, so I think there's a bit more going on there, and Ma- uh, Marty does see his son, and um, which is quite cathartic. And I think it's got—I do think it's got a bit more going on. But they're all great. The third one is also great um, in a completely different way in the Wild West. But I think mm-hmm. it's interesting. Like in the second one, you do get to see what in 1985 people might have thought the future would be. Yeah. With the hoverboards and things, which um, we're not a million miles away from these new scooters that keep appearing, that people just start zooming past me on these motorized um, <laughs> scooters, but they're not, they don't quite fly. But it is kind of interesting that 80s view of what things would be like. Yeah, that was some, I think that that was something I always liked, and and that's one of the reasons the second one is my favorite as well. Um, just because it gets kind of, they start having a little more expansive fun with the idea. They go to the future and back to the past and there's, you know, the timelines start overlapping. So they get more ambitious with it. And that's why I think I like the second one um, the the most. But also, of course, for the things you were just saying about the 80s version of 2015. Um and getting it mostly wrong, but still <laughs> a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, they definitely had a lot of fun with it, um, in the same way that '60s science fiction uh, imagined the 21st century looking surprisingly like the '60s already did. Um, I'm thinking of 2001: A Space Odyssey in particular. Uh, yeah. f- fashion just kind of goes to sleep for 50 years, I guess. Yeah, this is definitely like an MTV generation's version of of what life would be like um, and the possibilities, you know, um, Mm -hmm. emerging from the time. But very different from Terry Gilliam's (laughs) version of the future. Yeah, Um, that's a good segue as any. Uh, Yeah, Brazil apparently taking place somewhere in the 20th century. Yeah. and ignoring some of the more brutalist aspects of it, um, pretty accurate representation of a society choked by bureaucracy, uh, which is kind of the main villain of the film. I mean, yes, you have the the Orwellian thought police that uh, disappear people, but they're just following the forms. And that's really the terrifying part is that there's no one in charge. It's just the bureaucracy. It's interesting to view it from a British perspective as well, because um, the 80s as a decade was a difficult time for Britain, or for a lot of people mm. under Thatcher, and um, the poor were only getting poorer and um, didn't have much of a sense of control over their own futures. And I do think Brazil in many ways reflects that. You do get the people set upon tend to be the labourers, while the civil servants and the ministry are all well-spoken and safely sort of tucked away in secure spaces. And um, it does very much feel like it's saying that bureaucracy is not the real world or not or shouldn't be the real world. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Sam Lowry, you know, the, the protagonist is constantly escaping into his own imagination, um, just... Doesn't he wouldn't even have to be flying really to be free if he's just away from the concrete jungle uh, that he's trapped in, 
interestingly, his his nightmares rarely involve all the paperwork. It's always kind of stone and monsters and things like that. Um, but then again, the paper does ultimately turn out to be deadly, at least uh, in some in some version of reality. It does. Yeah, and uh, Gilliam made this movie just after uh, splitting with the Monty Python guys, right? Yeah, shortly after they did The Meaning of Life, I guess, would be a couple of years before this. It does make me think, like, were the weirder Python sketches influenced by him, <laughs> primarily based on this this film? Because it is a very strange film in terms of its surrealism. Um, he certainly had the kind of best surrealist cred of all of the Pythons, and I think that they... Um, a lot of the more surrealist moments in Monty Python were the others trying to bring his bizarre cartoon creations to life in some way, like match their absurdity and their surrealism. Uh, and so, yeah, he definitely has an amazing visual aesthetic that he brings to all of his films um, to degrees of success. I think Brazil is definitely one of his best films. Um, where he, it's long, but I don't mind that it's long. I like that he's just kind of giving us free reign in this world and immersing us in it and trapping us in it. Even the long runtime is in a way trapping you in this world um, <laughs> until you figure out a way to escape it. I'll turn it off. <laughs> we have that option, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I think the running time was a little bit of an issue for me. I think it is a bit shaggy. It probably should be 20 minutes shorter. Um, And I think it is very chaotic and quite difficult to follow at certain points. But I do feel like it would get better on repeat viewings. And, you know, maybe you'd notice a lot more details the second time, the third time around um, to flesh things out a bit. Um, But this is like coming in the wake of Blade Runner three years before and which um, was also set in the future and had this very sort of flashy futuristic landscape behind it. It's sort of East Asian looking um, but then the interiors were all sort of kind of grimy and um, you know neo-noir and ceiling fans and um, things like that and this is sort of similar with the noir um, interiors. It does feel like it's um, saying like maybe all those societies evolving in some ways. It maybe goes backwards in in others, like in terms of what people wear or what um, how rooms are decorated. You know, I think we're kind of not fully things are not fully evolving properly. And I was kind. I was really pleased to to read that this was nominated for its art direction, which is stupendous and so so mm-hmm. so so generous. To be honest, it's got so much going on, uh, and it did lose to Out of Africa, which seems like a really bad call. Yeah, yeah, it does. But yeah, definitely the um, the language of noir is definitely present, especially in the second half of the film. Um, and in the sequence where Sam goes to the ministry alone to uh, deal with, you know, to try to try to get um, 
what's her name? Why can't I remember? I just watched this movie Jill. today. Jill. Uh, to try to get Jill deleted from the system. And, you know, he's slinking through the dark hallways and the shadows. And he's got his overcoat and his uh, fedora on and everything. He just looks like a private detective lurking through the the mean streets. So it's a definitely it's a very noirish uh, sequence. Yeah. And, yeah, the art direction is absolutely incredible. Um, just terrifyingly uh brick and brutalist in the best way uh a, a perfect reflection of the film and it, it's a a wonderful concrete maze that he constructs for the movie well i paused it at one point and um and i paused it and i was looking at the posters on on the wall of sam's office when he gets promoted and one mm-hmm. of them one of them says uh don't suspect a friend, report him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Um, but it is this, it is very Orwellian and it is this grim version of the future that, that align, aligned with particular fears at the time of particularly of a police state. Um, but I was getting like, I don't know if this is just me, but I was getting like um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy vibes a little bit about it. It's sort of, feels almost like it could be set in space it's very it's got this whole um british 80s-ness to it where it kind of feels cheap but you don't mind because Mm -hmm. because the world building is still there um and it's got bits of humor in it as well that that are very british um but it's it's very off the wall in a way that i think British cinema was only, you know, off the wall in that way at that time. And it does have Monty Python elements to it. Yeah, there's a strong Python influence there, I think. Um, And of course, you have Michael Palin, deeply sinister role for him uh, as Jack, um, which apparently was a role that Robert De Niro really wanted. um, But Gilliam had already promised it to Michael Palin, so De Niro still wanted to be involved, so he took the role of Tuttle instead. And Kim Greist, um, Gillian was unhappy with her performance, apparently, and and cut many of her scenes. I mean, I thought she did quite well, and I think a real success of the film is that the love story does work for me. Um, Sam and Jill's love story where it it feels like at the beginning it shouldn't when they meet. It does feel a bit of a mismatch, but the way that it develops, it I, I did definitely believed in that. So I kind of thought that Price and, and Christ were both good uh, in different ways. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I didn't see any problem with Grace's performance. Um, and looking at the other considerations, I don't think that... Um, I don't think any of them would have been necessarily any better. So, um, no, I, I think that Grace did really well, and I think she and Price had good chemistry together uh, when they do finally get together about an hour and a half into the movie. Um, that was something I would forgot, how long it takes for the two characters to finally share a scene uh, in reality. That was a very long time. And it would 
you know, got to talk about <laughs> Bob Hoskins. Uh, funny, very funny performance in like two or three scenes as the relentless air conditioning repairman yeah. who Sam pisses off. Uh, and all these um, forms that keep men- being mentioned as well, um, that obviously kind of is again a, a symbol of the moment and all these sort of forms that the 80s British government kind of brought in to make things difficult for people to sort of um, claim money in various ways and things like that. But um, yeah, it's uh, I think it's surprising that Brazil got a nomination or got two nominations in the sense that this feels very much so away from the mainstream, really. Um, but I guess this was just critically mm-hmm. championed to such an extent that that forced people to watch it. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely um, beloved by critics. Uh, I think the LA film critics gave it, you know, best picture, director, screenplay. Um, and it had a rough road to release in the United States, but it, it also enjoyed a huge reputation in Europe and elsewhere um, because they didn't have a problem showing Gilliam's version of it, which the U.S. distributor Universal did. What do they think was wrong with it? Um, among other things, they didn't like the ending. Uh, and it's interesting that you brought up uh, Blade Runner because that went through a similar battle with the studio over its ending. Um, they wanted it to be happy. Uh, and they did actually make a cut of Brazil that is described now as the Love Conquers All version, which is much shorter and basically ends before the final moment. Um, And without spoiling anything for anybody who hasn't seen it, um, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. 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 So that was the version that they wanted to release in the U.S. And Gilliam very cleverly, uh, just got his cut and invited a bunch of film critics to come and view it. And they viewed it and they reviewed that one and gave it rave reviews and gave it awards and basically forced the studio's hand. They had to release Gilliam's version at that point because that was the one that was getting all the press. Very clever. Mm-hmm. So now we can go just south of brazil to argentina for (laughs) we're getting great segues here i hope we can keep it going um to uh to talk about this year's winner for best foreign language film the official story uh argentina's first win in the category yeah and this is slightly heavy a slightly heavy story of um Mm. a woman who who thinks that her daughter's um been snatched from a, a tortured leftist um i yeah i kind of liked that it was a mystery um that and that it was conceivable that she could either that the child could either have been this yeah offspring of a, of a tortured leftist or genuinely given up for adoption because it does feel like you know the film is going towards a political angle but either outcome could be conceivable um and both you know both paths of the plot make the point 
um, would have made a point in terms of the character study. And we don't fully get an answer to that mystery. Um, but I kind of, it's it always kind of maintains the intrigue, if you will, throughout. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, the fact that we never get the answer uh, to the mystery or we it could go either way is part of why it's so horrifying, the situation, because I'm sure that this was reality for many people at this time and continued to be who never got an answer, whether it was about a child they knew or had adopted or about a child that disappeared and they were trying to find and they never knew for sure because I'm sure records were, um, you know, misplaced. Yeah. Or, you know, lost behind a file cabinet if it's like Brazil. Um, it's a, just a a horrifying situation and a horrifying time. And I don't, I haven't read too much about um, the events around it, but enough to know that, ooh, this, and this film came out like a year after the junta fell. And so it's very, very timely and very, very, uh, you know, of the moment. Um, and it's a, yeah, just a, I was not expecting it to end when it did. Um, it seemed to me like there was maybe a little more uh, that could have been done or I could have seen a little more, but then it just ended the way it did. And it's just a devastating ending um, for a number of reasons to a devastating film. The, the husband's never nice throughout, but he's particularly horrible in the last scene. And you kind of yeah. thinking earth and you kind of feel like that's the end for her she's not going to stay with him anymore right sure yeah yeah but as a final scene um it is very very unconventional and slightly abrupt but yeah. i think it works i really think it works with the with the um them sharing their love because they both love the child and then seeing her on the um on the swing, that's the last shot of the movie, I think is really, really haunting. Yeah. But I think, like, for me, the interest was with Alicia's character, the fact that she's a history teacher, but she's she's kind of got a head in the clouds about what's really going on in Argentina at yeah. the beginning. You know, she's, she's happy with her privileged middle-class, upper-middle-class life, and and she's just blissfully unaware until you get that scene with Anna, uh, played by Chunchuna Villafane, who is brilliant uh, in the film, but particularly in this scene. But you see that that forces her to see every, you know, everything differently. Um, and the slight denial in Alejandro's performance, not wanting to believe it, but having to believe it because she knows, you know, the, this is her friend and she wouldn't lie about it. But she doesn't, I think she didn't quite concede that that was happening before. Um, so for me, I think Villafane was excellent. And um, she really works as a catalyst for the shift in, in Alicia's mentality. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very uh, powerful scene and a great performance uh, from both of them. Um, I loved 
just the the change in their in both of their demeanors as they go from you know getting drunk and laughing together and then even as the story begins to get dark they're still kind of laughing because they're drunk um and then the the pacing of of Norma Alejandro's performance as she just slowly begins to get sucked into the story and realizing what her friend is telling her is a so wonderful um I'm going to say now, I think Alejandro should have been nominated uh, for an Oscar this year, uh, Best Actress. Um, I Yeah, I agree. Oh, she did win the New York Film Critics Circle, and she tied with Cher for Best Actress at Cannes. Um, but neither got the Oscar nomination. I think they both deserved one. Mm-hmm. But um, Alejandro did later get an Oscar nomination, right? I think so, yeah, but it's, I'm not... Um, I'm blanking on what it was for. It was for um, Gabby, A True Story. It was just a couple of years later. Yeah, a film, interestingly, her daughter in, in This Is Called Gabby, and mm-hmm. the title of this movie is pretty much a true story. So it's kind of um, major similarities there, but it does feel like they may be recognized that they snubbed Alejandro in some way, or some members did, and... Yeah. And decided to nominate her for this instead, but yeah, it's unfortunate. I do feel like some of it is on the nose, and I do feel like the script has some real drawbacks because we mentioned the scene with with Anna, where Anna's describing the the rape and the torture that she's gone through, and for me that is enough to suggest that Alicia um, can then begin to open her mind a bit more to what's been going on. For me, that's enough. But the script has to have, you know, a leftist student in the class and mm. the the neighbouring teacher that's a, a free thinker and, you know, gets himself involved with her. And I did kind of feel like the film was a bit too heavy-handed at times in piling reasons uh, onto the character to branch out from from what she knows and from her own comfort zone. And I did feel like maybe the director is is wanting to extend that to the audience to, and to educate and inform an audience of people that might fit into her demographic, you know? Um which is which is noble intent, but it for me it it kind of pushed the film a little bit into too preachy a territory. Yeah. I I agree and I think you're right that that was probably uh, why he piled it on a bit um, and made Alethea a little bit a little bit more dense than I think she really needed to be about it um, yeah. I mean in in particular I was um, I was yelling at the screen when um, when she brings Sarah home the the possible grandmother of Gabby I just looking do you honestly think this is gonna go well <laughs> Yeah, what reaction was she expecting? <laughs> I don't know, but like she's just sitting there and she's looking at Roberto just like you're not, you know, you're going to be happy about this, right? You're going to be on my side when he has been very very clear that he's not going to react well to it. And he oh, Alicia, what are you doing, you know? That was that was the point where that was the only point where I was just kind of shaking my head and thinking, well, this is just a a script move that no no human would actually do um but 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he was just trying to hammer it home for uh, the international audience. Well, he she lights a cigarette in that scene, doesn't she? And I was thinking, honey, you're going to need that cigarette, I'm telling you. <laughs> I, this, is, this is about to explode. I, I thought he was going to start attacking the the grandmother, potential grandmother. But mm. mm-hmm. I did like the grandmother's performance. I did think... Um, the scene on the bus was very emotional where they're, where they're going back to the house and um, she says that she never thought she would risk losing the child. Um, Alicia says that. And I was thinking that if it was me, I wouldn't want to know. I mean, would you? Um, I don't know. I mean, if it, once it got into my head, I'm not sure I could let it go until I found out. But... I don't know what I would do once I, if I did find out that she was in fact um, kidnapped uh, from from a wrongfully imprisoned person. Um, you know, could you? Obviously, you'd have that guilt, but it would also be your child. I mean, it's it wasn't like it happened a week after they adopted her as a baby. She's been in their home for five years, and it's hard to hard to imagine giving her up at that point. Yeah. And I don't think there'd be any legal recourse at that point um, saying they would have to hand her back, to be honest. I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting foreign language winner, but it's one that very much, at least for me, even though I have some issues with the script, I think it's good that it represents... um, it sort of underlines a period in in that country's history, you know? Um, yeah. So it is very valuable uh, from a historical perspective to, to kind of see what that country was going through in 1985. Yeah, highlighting a yeah, very difficult period that, that took them a long time to uh, kind of pull themselves out of and, and fix all the wrongs. Kind of like the Great Depression in the United States. <laughs> let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is everyone's favorite, right? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, one of many Woody Allen Best pick, best um, sorry, Best Original Screenplay nominees. Um, he was just piling them up in the 80s. We've already talked about uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, way back in their second or third episode. Um, and here we have a pretty short one. I, w- I didn't remember this film being only about 80 minutes long. It's a little gem of a movie, really. And I think Alan said that it was one of his favorites that he's done. And there was a direct quote that he said, it's the one that came closest to my original conception. How does this rank in terms of his movies? I think it ranks uh, pretty highly. Um, it's simultaneously a love letter to uh, classic films and people who love classic films, while also being a cautionary tale about um, you know having to live in the real world and not giving in to fantasy. Although... In the end, giving in to fantasy would have been the correct option. Like, she should have jumped into the picture uh, with Tom and and lived in that world. Um, 
So, if she could have stood the Countess for the rest of her life, <laughs> I imagine you get used to that uh, <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, if if you're spending your days and nights uh, ritzing it up at the Copa, uh, I, I I have to imagine you'd get used to a few barbs from from the rich Countess after a while. No champagne, though. Only ginger ale. Well, it's better for you. <laughs> yeah, this the concept of this film is so great, but um, to then mine it for this many laughs, I think, is a real achievement. So it's one of Alan's best scripts for me, along with Hannah and her sisters. I think this is probably his heyday, to be honest. Yeah, no, definitely. And it is very much a love letter to cinema, the idea of, of movies as as an escapism, as a fantasy to get swept up in. And the timeless nature of them, really, you know, the the immortality of actors. You know, this is... We, we do this podcast and we talk about actors, most of which are dead, to be honest. Um, that's mm-hmm. just the way it goes. But, you know, the, there is a, a timeless nature to cinema that Alan definitely captures in this. And as an old film... The Purple Rose of Cairo as a movie in the, this movie is pretty convincing, really. Like in terms of the the look of the the old film and the the actor, the characters that are in it. Oh yeah, I mean, you. I love watching movies by people who clearly love that era of film because when they recreate it, uh, they always do it with such love and such attention to detail. Um, right down to the kind of clipped uh, mid-30s manner of speaking that actors affected, um, which they drop when they're conversing with the audience uh, and conversing with the real world. Um, And the kind of fuzziness of the sets, or I mean of the shots and the opulence of the sets that are clearly sets. Um, It's really, really great. Uh, and did uh, did you recognize the actor who played Henry? Uh, we saw him a few episodes ago uh, as a in law school in the paper chase, Edward Herman. Yeah, uh, and when I saw him, I thought uh, it's it's pretty much an exact mock up of Edward Everett Horton. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I thought of him too. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, it's it's a spitting image, but Alan's yep. really got this down. You've got all the archetypes going on there with the countess and the seductive female and the maid, and it's all very. Um, it feels like a complete throwback, but I think it does feel like in this movie, Alan is critiquing the idea of of cinema being formulaic and. The idea that people want to see the same film with the same story again and again and can't handle it when their expectations aren't fully realised. So I definitely feel like he's in some way saying maybe cinema's got boring. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely critiquing um, the Hollywood machine that wants everything to stay you know everything to be one type and audiences that get upset when their um when their expectations are overturned um 
there's that one scene that's hilarious when the woman's uh, screaming at the ticket agent. <laughs> you know, I saw this movie last week and they didn't do this. I want them to do what they did the last time I saw it. And I mean, I, there are definitely people who, when they s- go see movies with the same actors, the same whatever, they want them to do exactly what they did before, especially in this, in the area the film is uh, talking about. I mean... Uh, the real film that it includes is um, is a top hat, right, with Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and that movie is pretty much a carbon copy of The Gay Divorcee, but was still a massive hit. Also got a Best Picture nomination, and uh, just the same director, same stars, same writers, same everything, but that's what people wanted. I thought it was The Gay Divorcee. Um, there you go yeah so they're just so similar I guess Uh, yeah (laughs) every time what the movie cuts to the actors reacting to the fact that Tom Baxter has just walked off the screen and that they realise they can't continue with the movie all of that stuff is hilarious it's absolute genius writing you know you've got the housemaid coming in say what the hell's going on the priest from real five is in real two <laughs> it's yeah. uh, the count when somebody has the countess starts having a slanging match with somebody in the audience mm-hmm. uh, and she says oh <laughs> i'm a i'm a genuine countess with a ton of dough and if that's your wife she's a tub of guts <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just funny it's just the absolute banter uh between them um is is genius. I just loved that. Th- those were my favorite parts of the film. But yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just loved that everybody's just indignant that it's happening. <laughs> like no, nobody like faints or goes insane because reality is an illusion, and characters from the screen are jumping off. And there's like multiple, um, multiple Tom Baxters that they're talking about like there's one in detroit who's forgetting his lines and there's one in chicago who's trying to leave the movie and they're all just like <laughs> independent entities depending on how many screens they're on which i guess you know maybe this film in this universe this was the um origin story of limited releases studios just they didn't want to build hype they just wanted to make sure that actors didn't leave the picture in too many locations um but yeah, I love that. I love the indignance. I love the lawyers, the film, the Hollywood lawyers figuring out the legal aspects of it, um, and the the fights between Tom and Gil about who's real and who's not and what's going on. Um, yeah, those those moments are great. Although I don't understand why the priest and the other characters can wander in from other reels, but the characters that are in the scene are trapped there forever like why can't they wander to the next reel and go to the copa yeah maybe they just yeah i see what you mean but then they go and they sit around and play bridge don't they at some one point and it's like (laughs) yeah um but can you believe they wanted to change the ending to this film i didn't actually what did they want to change it to i didn't know that well i think many people uh in and around like around alan said that the film would be perfect if he changed the ending to a happy ending. Hmm. Um, but I feel like the ending is perfect. It's it's for me. It's 
watching it again is probably one of my favourite endings to a film ever because it underlines the point that even at somebody's lowest points when you feel like you know you can't escape your problem your own problems you can go into a movie theatre you can listen to a song or do whatever you enjoy doing and the problems can disappear for however long that is you know so yeah and you know we've i mean i've personally experienced that when i've been um depressed for whatever reason and gone to see something and it's made me smile i remember seeing begin again the john carney film mm-hmm. um from a few years ago and I, it just made me disappear into the movie so i love that alan says that with the um with the ending and there's even a hint that of a happy ending like he has a shot of of gill looking regretful on a plane mm-hmm. and you know part part of you thinks so oh, is he going to come back for her but um but no he doesn't but yeah no i i i wouldn't change a thing about the ending um and you're right it's it's that idea of film allowing you to for an hour and a half or so um immersing yourself in something else and forgetting your troubles and enjoying yourself no matter what is going on in your life i've definitely had plenty of experiences like that myself and it's also a love letter to going to the cinema by yourself you know um those opening bits where she first goes and it's like uh two please two please it's just me and then like that's great that's awesome. I love going to the cinema by myself and watching a movie. It's one of one of my favorite experiences. Me too. I whenever there's someone else there I'm slightly slightly like, you know, don't expect to turn and see them to be honest, just because ever since mm-hmm. I was like 18 I've been I've been going on my own, but I think there's something very lovely about going. There's there's a kind of stigma, isn't there that oh why are you going on your own? You you know you've not got anybody to go with, and I kind of think, well, what do I need anybody to go with? You've got the film. What more do you need? Exactly, and I mean even even watching a movie with someone else present, um, still it's a very personal experience, and yeah, you don't want to be some movies. You just don't want to be distracted by wondering, are they liking this or you know what's going on what are they thinking you just want to let it wash over you and immerse yourself in it and it's it's hard with somebody else there but i even when i go see movies with somebody else i'm in it myself you know uh so it really doesn't make much of a difference to me um <laughs> so it's it's better i think when i'm on my own cuz then you don't have that societal pressure to you know do whatever people think you're supposed to do with somebody when you watch a movie together other than watch the movie. I mean, kind of, it's a mystery, it's a mystery to me. I don't know. Once I went um, on a date with a guy that just wanted to talk through the entire film and it was one of the worst experiences of my life, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah, that's bad. It, at least it was a horror film. So yeah. he was talking during some loud bits. So it, it wasn't too embarrassing, but uh, yeah, it, that's a big no-no. Yeah, big, big. I don't even like when people talk when I'm watching a movie at home, much less in a theater. It's it's 
Definitely verboten. Any more on Cairo? Mia Farrow, did she deserve a Best Actress nomination? Maybe. No, I don't feel as strongly about it as Norma Alejandro. Um, but I could see her being in the in the running, yeah. for sure. I think she gives a lovely, lovely sensitive performance. One of her best, I think. Yeah. But all of these films lost to uh, the only Best Picture nominee in this group, um, the Amish Noir Witness. <laughs> Amish Noir, that, sub- <laughs> that well-known subgenre. Yeah, a very brief heyday uh, in 1985, and then we didn't see it again. Well, this was this is Peter Weir, um, and it was hardly a passion project for Peter Weir. I think he was um, preparing for the Mosquito Coast, and the financing fell through, and he ended up signing onto this this movie uh, with Paramount, and. It didn't take long for the screenwriters to object to Peter Weir's um, input because they were offended at the fact that he thought the the love scene in the movie was cliched and needed to be eliminated. So the screenwriters went to the producer and they eventually got their way and it was reinstated. What do you think of the... Mm of the love scene i'm assuming that means it's not really a love scene is it i assume that means no are you are you you talking about the scene yeah you're talking about the scene where she flashes him i think so and they just kind of stare each other down um i i would be lying if i thought it needed to be there um I, i don't see any problem with it being there it does advance their story and give them a bit of conflict, but on the other hand, I don't. Yeah, I, I I don't think I'd miss it if it wasn't there. I don't think that I would um, get to the end of the film and be like, "Well, they definitely missed something in their characters' development," um, because they kind of had a much more intimate scene earlier in the film. I mean, they had all their clothes on, but they were uh, when they were dancing uh, next to the car. Yeah, that to me was much more intimate uh, and much more like borderline sex than him just kind of ogling her <laughs> as she washed. Like I, I, I'm sorry, I don't. Harrison Ford does not have a you know romantic look when he's looking at her. It's just kind of a guy staring from the shadows at a woman washing, and you know she just happens to be into him, so she's not creeped out. Um, but any other woman would be creeped out, I think. Well, isn't there that scene in Atlantic City with Susan Sarandon with her breasts out of the sink, cut, you know, washing up or something? And it reminded me a little bit of that. I was, I was like, why have you got your breasts out? I mean, it just felt a little <laughs> bit sort of, um, okay, all right, go for it. But not sure what we're doing here. But um, it's... I felt that Rachel, Kenny McGillis's character, was quite harsh on John at the beginning of the movie. I mean, I know she's just lost her husband and everything, but he's only doing his job and and yet she's quite dismissive of him. 
she talks to his sister and she ends up telling him everything his sister's said about him being this lonely guy who needs to get a family of his own and stop visiting her family and the fact he drinks too much and I kind of thought where does she get off on telling him this she barely knows him you know and mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I I mean is that a comment on Amish, pe- Amish people being judgmental because that's how I read that scene I thought are they trying to say something about that because it didn't feel like a natural reaction to me well, yeah, I mean, they definitely, the script definitely goes out of its way to show all of the Amish characters as a bit holier than thou, um, a bit judgy. And yeah, Rachel is like taking pleasure almost in repeating what John's sister told her about him. And also, what what the hell's with his sister saying all that stuff to a complete <laughs> stranger? It's like, damn, man, you know, he just... He just brought, you know, you and your son there to protect them from a killer. Maybe don't, you know, maybe don't rag on him so much. It's not his fault, you know, that your son had to go to the bathroom at the wrong time. Um, well, that's another thing. Well, that's another thing. Do, I mean, is there a movie if she just takes him to the women's bathroom? There you go. Would most mothers take their three-year-old, four-year-old son to the women's bathroom? I'm... I wasn't that young, was he? He had he was like eight or nine, wasn't he? Was he? Uh, I mean, he was walking upright and he had a full vocabulary, so... It was a dodgy-looking train station bathroom. Well, yeah, but... it was 80s Philadelphia. <laughs> I don't know. I thought maybe that was another thing that was commenting on the, the religious aspect that she wouldn't sort of break up the gender rules. Um, I don't know. But we, we, we certainly don't have a film if that, um, if that doesn't happen. But I, I did like, I did like the, um, the tension of the scene in the bathroom. I thought that yeah. was, that was done very well. And I thought it was a shame that, that the film didn't quite ever match that level of tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a shame because um, that level of tension is completely missing from the climax. Um, yeah. And yeah, the film really drops the ball there. But in the bathroom scene, I have to say, Samuel, fast thinking for a sheltered Amish boy leaving his village for the first time. Um, <laughs> you know, locking the bathroom stall seems like a bad move, but then he uses that time to duck into the next one sharp this kid you know is sharp so well done samuel um yeah but yeah unfortunately the end is the end is a mess um he manages to uh kill one of the bad guys in a you know a very amish way uh by suffocating him in the in the grain in the silo which i Found out after watching the movie again is enough of a common cause of death to have its own article on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> what, death by grain? Yeah. Grain drowning. Grain suffocation or grain engulfment, it calls it. Um, and I don't know if you need a whole article to say if you're buried in grain, you can't breathe. But it does. 
And uh, so if anybody's interested in the history and mechanics of suffocating in a grain silo, uh, Wikipedia's got you covered. I read a book about a woman who suffocated in like a ball of wool, but that that's the closest I've gotten. That's a new one for me. It's, it's a method of, of murder, but... Well, the worst type of suffocation I've ever heard about was in um, Boston in the early 20th century. A vat of molasses exploded oh. and flooded a street in molasses, and somebody was engulfed in the molasses and, and died in it. Uh, probably, I, I think that's the most terrifying method of death I've ever heard of. Um, but yeah, suffoc- suffocating in any way, uh, not great. Were they diabetic? I don't know, but that would be uh, that would be an ironic death. <laughs> uh, yeah, but at the end, I mean, can we can we agree that the villain just gives up? Yeah. At the end. Yeah, he just sees. I mean, talk about you know those judgy Amish people. He just sees them all staring at him, thinking, "Oh, thou art going to hell." And he just is like, oh, shit, you're right. I can't stand up to these stern gazes. Well, and it's especially odd because the representation of the place throughout is very sort of villainous 101. Yeah. Um, It's very silly. Like, there's a scene where John goes to see the police chief, who's played by Joseph Summer. And it's a bit like the scene where where Kevin Spacey goes to, to James Cromwell's house in LA mm-hmm. Confidential. Yeah. Except that I think we pretty much know at that point that Cromwell is a bad guy. But in this, like, Summer does a terrible job at acting surprised that John's found this information out. It's like the least convincing uh, lying you've ever seen um, yeah. from a character, you know, and he just sees right through him rightly. Um, but it throughout they are just sort of bad guys with no depth of character. Um, the performances don't add anything to to the sense that these are just bent cops trying to protect themselves, and and then for then the head of those people to just give up and drop his gun at the end to me feels silly. Very silly, and. They don't do anything with all the time they have while while John Book is uh, in hiding and incommunicado. They could have been framing the shit out of him for everything, for um, the original cop's death in the bathroom, for his partner's death uh, that they engineer. What were they doing the whole time? They and then they just the three of them just show up to take him out. And that's their plan. It's terrible. They're, it's just like trying so hard to be a, new, a neo-noir and just scratching the surface and just having the caricatures, like, the, yeah, the bent cops, you have to have them. Um, but they don't do the legwork to flesh them out. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of Kenny McGillis? Because... She did get a BAFTA nomination for this in Best Actress and a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actress, uh, but nothing at the Oscars. Is this a category confusion issue? Is this about the campaign? Did she deserve 
anything? Uh, I I think she does a fine job. I don't know if I'd nominate anybody uh, from this movie. Uh, Harrison Ford got Best Actor, but I wouldn't have been in his camp uh, during the nomination process at all. No, she's fine, but it does feel like she was definitely close to getting some sort of nomination in either category. Probably. And it was nice to see Viggo, a young Viggo Mortensen, in a small role. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and after seeing, you can kind of think of it as an Eastern uh, history of violence prequel. <laughs> He's just kind of uh, gone to ground in an Amish community. And he doesn't have any he doesn't have any audible lines, does he? But he has he gets a lot of screen time during the barn raising uh, sequence. Yeah. But knowing him, he probably learned German uh, just so he could speak it convincingly to the other uh, actors. <laughs> okay, so why did Witness win this Oscar? And was it close? What do we think? Um, I honestly don't know. Um, maybe because it um got up into the best picture and director race as well. Um, but I don't know why it won. Uh, I have to imagine it was close because all the other films were very strong scripts, and I I don't know. I don't have any clue why this one rose to the top. Well, I think it obviously, I mean, the best the best picture nomination, regardless of what we think of the quality of the film, it was clearly the most popular film overall of these five. I actually think it might have not been a runaway. I think it, I kind of think, you know, the official story won best foreign language film. It got a nomination here. It's incredibly emotional. Um... It's a bit of a gut punch at the end. It's a very humanist drama. I do think that the official story was second from this group. Yeah. And um, I would say not. I mean, probably not a nail biter, but I don't think it was far away. Um, what about snubs? Uh, can we think of any screenplays this year that got crowded out of the lineup? Well, there are a couple that got uh, Writers Guild. Association nominations, which were Cocoon, um, this cuddly, cuddly sci-fi drama at the at the care home, um, which is not particularly special, but was very popular, and Mask, which we mentioned earlier, which Cher won the Best Actress award for at Cannes, which is a really mm. lovely, tender, touching film about a guy with a um, facial deformation. Um, deformity, facial deformity. Um, so, yeah, yeah. D- definitely those two. Beyond that, I would say maybe The Breakfast Club deserved one, but probably wasn't close to getting one. And Weatherby, which is this really, really great drama uh, from David Hare, who has gotten some nominations. I think he did The Reader, uh, but it was it was based on a play starring... Uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Jolie Richardson and that seems like a lot of prestige so maybe somewhere on the outside that was lingering about yeah 
I was thinking maybe, and I don't know if it would actually technically be this category, but Clue uh, was this year, and that had a very fun script. It would deserve it, but I'm, I thought maybe it was adapted from a board game. Does that, or is that not existing material? I don't know. That that's why I'm saying is that I don't know how it would work because yeah, it was nominated. It was based on a game, which doesn't seem like enough of a adaptation to count. I mean, the story is definitely original. So, I mean, if it if it was going to be in this category, it would deserve to win for me above yeah. all of these nominees because it's just a ma- like a masterclass in how to create a great mystery and you know it's sort of like this american satire as well right yeah yeah definitely and yeah if this if it was in the category it'd be right up there yeah did we have any wider observations um on 1985 out of africa won seven oscars this is quite a haul yeah kind of kind of weird um, in fact, it was re- <laughs> it was released the same day the LA film critics showered their top prizes onto Brazil. So, um, but yeah, for some reason the Oscars um, jumped all over it when they had some had some better movies that they could have chosen from. Any one of these unnominated films could have been a Best Picture nominee in this category. Maybe not Back to the Future. Maybe it's not quite. Best Picture caliber, but Brazil, the official story, and Purple Rose of Cairo absolutely could have been Best Picture nominees, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, most of these definitely, definitely could. I don't get the love for Out of Africa. Um, it has mm-hmm. good elements, but overall, I was not uh, moved by it at all. Um, yeah, I do think it's interesting that that this is the second time in this year that Spielberg gets the Best Picture nomination this time for for The Colour Purple, and the second time he's left out of Best Director. Um, Obviously, he had had some some movies in between that, E.T. and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was nominated in both. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is his second kind of snub when the movie gets a Best Picture nomination after Jaws. Yeah, and this one hurts even more because... 11 nominations for the color purple and nothing for best director um we talked in a previous episode about 1969's they shoot horses don't they which has the record for most nominations without a best picture nod right at nine and this one is the record for most without a best director nomination 11 11 and three acting nominations how do you nominate a film for Best Picture, and nominate three of its performances, and then, yeah, the director, he wasn't that special. (laughs) But also, didn't The Color Purple lose all of its 11 nominations? It did. Yep, yep. Oof. That is tough. Yep. But I think Spielberg has had a few, like a, a number of his films be nominated for several Oscars and lose them all, like I think Warhorse lost them all and Munich as well. Um yep. if I remember correctly. And of course this is I mean this is the year that Geraldine Page also finally wins an Oscar. We could <laughs> we've got three of the acting categories we could do. 
um, because Witness only was nominated Best Actor. So, but yeah, this is um, a long time coming for Geraldine Page. Yeah, we we talked about one of her many previous nominations when we did 1966 Supporting Actress. Uh, I've not seen The Trip to Bountiful, actually. Um, so I actually I haven't seen any of the Best Actress nominees from this year except out of Africa. So that's pretty bad. Wow. Maybe we'll do that in the future then. Good idea. So now we come to our ranking. How would we rank these uh, films? You want to go first? Okay. Um, so at five, I have Witness. Um, I think it's a pretty mediocre film overall. I don't think it's terrible, but it, it's just, for me, it not a lot happened for me, given the the length of the movie. I thought it had strangely muddled messages about the Amish community and um, it wasn't tense enough overall. It, it, it really sort of petered out for me. Um, number four, I've got the official story, which I really appreciate as a film. I do think the writing is perhaps the weakest part about it. Um, the acting being the strongest of probably all these movies overall. Mm-hmm. Number three, I have Brazil because of its originality and its vision. Um, But I do think structurally it's a bit of a mess um, at times and it's a little too chaotic and unfocused to rank higher than that. Number two, I've got Back to the Future because it's it's just a classic and it's, it's really ambitious with its premise. And I'm at number one, I'm going for the Purple Rose of Cairo because I think that it manages to be witty and um, incredibly touching and romantic about cinema and um, while also evoking, uh, you know, classic movies. And um, yeah, I think the dialogue alone really, really puts it um, above everything else for me. There's just, it's a laugh a minute kind of film. So I loved it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, our rankings are actually pretty similar, but one uh, one pretty big difference. I've got Witness at number five as well. Yeah, just kind of a pedestrian film and a pedestrian script um, that, yeah, if, if the writers were so concerned with fighting over, um, you know, getting their leading lady to flash her breasts on camera, maybe they could have uh, maybe put that energy into tightening up the rest of the script. Um, number four, I have the official story again, a very powerful film. And I think a very powerful script and a, uh, necessary film of the time. And even now, because I don't, I didn't know much about this period of Argentinian history, uh, before watching it. And that's not good. People need to know. Yeah. Um, number three, I have the purple rose of Cairo, uh, agree with everything you said, about it um and that just means that the other two are um you know that much better than this very very good script uh definitely one of alan's best so putting it number three feels weird but there it is um number two i have brazil um i don't mind the structural issues with it uh as much simply because i think that a film mocking a ultra structured to the point of dystopia bureaucracy. Um, I like that it's 
madcap and i like that it's not beholden to um as beholden to structure as it could have been and i like that it kind of just lets loose um in that regard so i think it, i think it kind of works thematically for me that it's a little fuzzy mm. and then number one i have back to the future um it's just a very very enjoyable script an enjoyable movie that gets brought to life in a very exuberant way touching on some interesting ideas and interesting themes um in a comedic way and like i said it's one of the only films i've done that i've seen that does the altering the future aspect of time travel correctly yes all four of um all of those top three have cracking lines in them um and so you know that's what i love about original screenplays is when the writers you know come up with these great lines these great moments um and of course woody allen is the master at that but uh the other two scripts do it really well okay um so we've got a website it's categoricallyoscars.com we're on twitter at categorically o please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy listening to it um thanks for listening to this bonus episode we'll be back with a regular episode next week see you then (laughs) 